Usually, the annual budget request to Congress coming out of the White House is more of a policy document than a spending plan based on any sort of reality. The Biden administration's first full budget request fell short on the policy side, though, particularly around technology and cybersecurity. Unless you know where to look, well, you're in luck. Federal News Network's own Jason Miller does know where to look, and he did. He joins me now with some highlights from his weekly feature, The Reporter's Notebook. And, Jason, let's start with some of those top-line numbers, winners, losers in the annual IT spending sweepstakes. It is a sweepstakes, and, Tom, you and I have been doing this now for a good 20-plus years, and it's always up, up, up. I remember when we wrote, oh, this would be $80 billion, and now we're pushing close to $100 billion in IT spending. The issue for this Biden administration 2022 budget request is you only know the civilian side. We don't know the DOD spending for IT. They didn't put it out there. On the civilian side, it's about $58.4 billion, a 2.4% increase over this year, 2021. But, Tom, if you look back at the federal IT dashboard, you look at what DOD spent in 2021 or plans to spend, it's about $37.1 billion. DOD is not increasing by all that much. It's a very flat budget. So when you combine those two, we're looking at something around $95.5 to $96 billion in IT spending. And DOD, during their press conferences post-budget, talked about things like artificial intelligence, 5G, other emerging technologies as their focus. But again, why didn't OMB and the White House include the DOD IT budget? We don't know. Yeah, we don't even know how many aircraft carriers they plan to buy either, for that matter. And did that number that you just cited, the $58 billion, did that also include the proposed $500 million for the Technology Modernization Fund? Interestingly enough, they don't break it out. That's agency by agency spending. And, and the TMF, because that's kind of that bucket money, that's a whole separate piece. And, and Tom, if you look at where money is going... You know, one thing to keep in mind is that the administration received a billion dollars for the TMF uh, in the American Rescue uh, Plan Act. Now they're asking for another half a billion dollars, $500 million. If you, again, dig a little deeper into that budget, one of the most interesting things you'll find is the General Services Administration, which where the TMF budget line item lives because they manage the program, they expect to carry over over $800 million from the, in the TMF from 21 to 22. So that's telling us that they only expect to award about or loan out, quote unquote, about $200 million from that $1 billion they received just a few months ago. So you're starting to see the pieces come together. So they expect TMF projects, which, by the way, Tom, the first set were due on, on June 2nd, right? So today. And that's for expedited consideration. So they're only Got expecting it. around $200 million to go out the door, if, if my math is correct. And I'm no math major, you know that. No, but it's almost like a lot of the spending in COVID relief. There's still money from the CARES Act unspent. So there's this buildup of unspent funds throughout the government. And I think you're going to start seeing that with cybersecurity, too. One of the big things, cybersecurity, for instance, Tom, is going to uh, expect it to increase by 14%, $9.8 billion. Again, that was my next question. Just, what about cyber? Just for civilian agencies, 14%. Just for civilians. Again, we don't know what DOD plans to spend. Uh, the, again, the, during the DOD press briefings, they did talk about how much they thought that they would have for, for cyber. And, and again, that, that's roughly um, uh, about $10 billion. So we're talking about almost more than $20 billion in cybersecurity across the government. Now, what's interesting about cyber, Tom, again, you just uh, – Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA for, at DHS, just received uh, a big chunk of dollars from the American Rescue and, you know, plan again. So, again, the backup is building, and they're asking for more. I think CISA, they're asking for a total of $1.2 billion for their entire budget, and that also obviously includes – about $900 million for cybersecurity efforts across the federal government. Sure. One other real quick piece on cyber, Tom, that's really interesting about this is the there's a bill from Senator Peters 
and from Senator Portman creating something called the Cyber Response and Recovery Fund. And the bill authorizes $20 million. The administration asks for $20 million. And this was going to really help state and local governments and others respond to cyber incidents. And CISA was very much for this. So you're starting to see some of that policy come together. Well, what's the old expression? Put out your buckets while it's raining. And that seems to be what the agencies are doing. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And just a question about that cyber spending, that top line number, I guess, for IT also. Does that include the people? Because wouldn't CISA need to kind of staff up to be able to do everything that's being laid on it? It absolutely does. I think any, any of these, all these budget requests include salaries and expenses. Now, sometimes, like if you look at, for instance, the, the Treasury Department as an example, they asked for $137 million for its cybersecurity enhancement account. They said $114 million of that would be to uh, deal with the solar winds incident. So their Treasury is admitting they got affected by the solar winds attack. Does that $137 million include people? It's hard to say. You don't really see that line item down. But Treasury does have a big line item for salaries and expenses. You'd have to assume there's some cyber people a part of that. Uh, the other one I'll just throw out there real quick, Tom, is the FBI, right? The FBI is seeking about $15.2 million to defend itself from cyber threats. Again, you'd have to have some assumption that's going to include more people there. Got it. And as we said in the beginning here, there's not a lot of policy discussion in the budget. You found a lot of numbers. What do they want to do? What's their philosophy? Can we tell yet from the submissions from last Friday? Generally speaking, we're still waiting on the president's management agenda, and that's going to really lay out what their policy challenges are, where they see they want to take the, the government going. But, Tom, at the same time, if you kind of read between the lines a little, and I'll give you one quick example, working capital funds. This is the really the better piece of the Modernizing Government Technology Act. Everyone loves to focus on the TMF and how much money is in the TMF. But really, the people who wrote the law, like former Congressman Will Hurd, folks like Rich Butel will tell you, it's really the working capital funds that really could have the biggest impact on government legacy IT and modernizing it. And when you see who's requested this, for instance, the Labor Department, perfect example, they want authority to to create an IT working capital fund, and they said that they would want to you know, be able to transfer money. Another agency, the Office of Personnel Management, for instance, they also – they don't make the specific request, but then they say in their budget, we would transfer salaries and expenses, extra funding into an IT working capital fund. So, okay, now they seem to want to set one up. And then finally, the U.S. Agency for International Development for the third year in a row is asking for this authority, and they would transfer 5% or up to $30 million into that fund. So that's where you're starting to see the policy side of this push from the Biden administration. They love the TMF. Hey, that working capital fund, we see the, the, the potential benefits there. Now, I can see where the Northern Virginia congressional contingent would really like this budget because it helps the contractors in their area. It supports the federal government employees in their area. What's your sense of how much support there is for these kinds of numbers in the rest of Congress? Because of the SolarWinds attack, because of the Microsoft Exchange attack, because of the Pulse Secure attack, let's go on and on and on, because of concerns about nation-state attacks that we've just been hearing, I think the plus-up for Congress – uh, for for cybersecurity is real. I think I think will every agency get every dollar they want? Who knows, right, Tom? But we know that there's a lot of support now for CISA to give CISA more for dollars. For instance, the ranking member of the House Homeland Security uh, Committee, John Katko, talked about wanting to make CISA a five billion dollar agency by 2025 or something like that. So I think that there's a lot of understanding that we need more money for cyber. The technology side, that's always a harder push, and we've talked about this before. 
will the Senate, they got behind the billion dollars, will they get behind another $500 million? I think that's really the big question. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. Be sure to check out his reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. And as he finds out more detail, as we all do, we will bring it to you at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream. 
which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was a beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, 
who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First. Always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.